Well, let's turn together, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans uh, chapter 12. I think it's providential that we're hitting these verses today because I can't imagine a better way to introduce this message and the heart of this passage than by uh, talking a little bit about Dave Hoffelmeyer. As you saw in Thursday's bulletin, hopefully you've seen it, and as Rebecca said earlier, that we have our candidate for the lead pastor of Faith Church, Loveland. He'll be preaching right here three weeks from today. And I can't imagine a better way to introduce this man than through the pastoral profile that describes what we were looking for all the way along in a senior pastor, one which in God's providence uh, leads up to our passage for today. Because in many ways, the heart of the passage is uh, at the heart of the man that you'll be considering. As most of you know, we went through a long process to discover uh, who we are as a congregation. We're not a generic congregation, and we don't need a generic pastor. And so we uh, went through a long process to discover that. Uh, And in light of that, who we are uniquely, what kind of a lead pastor we uniquely need. Out of that process came our mission and values, which you approved last August. And based on our mission and values, we developed uh, what we call the pastoral profile, which took a huge amount of work by the transition team, by the staff, by session and the search committee, and a good deal of input from key people in the congregation, our pastoral profile. Most churches don't go through this kind of process, so it's kind of like, you know, pin the tail on the donkey when it comes to what they're looking for. And uh, when it comes to candidate, they pick up, you know, what they don't or what they don't do or don't like out of thin air uh, without some basis. It can be like a beauty pageant, you know, where it's all in the eye of the beholder or a a preach-off or some kind of, I don't know, popularity contest. I, for one, like his name. I mean, what, what's not to like about a name with Meyer in it? <laughs> and just talk to Adam and Ashley Bollmeyer about what they think about the Hoffelmeyers. If you ask me, I also like his height. <laughs> so does Jim Murphy, not to mention uh, Tim Philibosian. That's got to be a requirement for being a lead pastor around here. <laughs> Seriously, though. Here is what we were actually looking for and what, by God's grace, the search committee has found. At least we think so. And now it's up to you to decide, uh, as the priesthood of all believers, uh, to see if you agree. Agree about what? How are you supposed to make your decision if not out of thin air? Well, let me briefly go through the profile as a way of uh, introducing Dave and as a way of giving you some idea of what you need to be looking for as you evaluate him. You'll also find this uh, on our website that you can uh, pray through it. As I go through it, I'd like you to answer a question, one question, and that is this. Which of these, which of these do you think is the most important? Which is the most important? Who is David, David Hoffelmeyer? Well, it's a unique profile that we uh, put together, one that, that's unique to our needs, to our passions and uh, aspirations as a congregation. It has four core requirements and four core roles. And they're all connected with our unique mission and values. The first requirement, is this on? Always helps to turn on the switch. 
The first core requirement is a heart for God, bottom line. And there's a whole lot that we've included under that. But it begins with this, listen, has demonstrated a deep and genuine love for, sensitivity to, and a life committed to the service of God. Models an active, constant, dynamic prayer life. A heart for God. The second core requirement is a heart for people. The profile says this. A humble servant, engaging and friendly, will be gifted uh, with a love for people. He will see people as individuals as through the eyes of Jesus, accepting them with love as they are, but caring for them and desiring them to become the person God wants them to become because of that love. The third requirement is that he meets elder qualifications with the humility and vulnerability of a fellow servant. Here's how we put it. Listen carefully. Character will trump skills if necessary. Will have an exemplary life but with genuine humility. Willing and able to share his weaknesses and struggles, both personally and in his preaching, as a means of identifying with and encouraging others in their own struggles and spiritual growth. And then finally, the fourth core requirement is that he needs to be strong in essential doctrines and compassion, truth and love. Essential doctrines and compassion. It says, a man of deep convictions with a heart for conciliation. He seeks not uniformity, but unity within diversity that encourages honestly discussing differences and agreeing to disagree in love if we need to. Then there are four core roles. First, a head pastor who leads strategically and dependently by our unique mission and values. And so they were looking for someone who uniquely resonates with who we uniquely are. Second, a mentor and disciple maker. A mentor and a disciple maker uh, with a passion for multiplying ministers and seeing the success of others. That's because under and through it all, the core of our mission is that we want to be a disciple-making family. And so the pastor needs to be a mentor and disciple maker. Third, a teaching elder with a passion who is passionate about Scripture. And there's a whole lot in that. And then finally, fourth, a team player with a servant's heart. There's so much more that I could go into here, but which of these, again, was most important? Would you, would you choose preaching, say, over a heart for God? Many churches do. Or a heart for people? Well, which is most important? They're all essential. And David Hoffelmeyer, while he'd be the first to acknowledge his need for growth, believe it or not, is strong in each of these areas more than any other candidate that we looked at. So much so that even though he's young, he's the chair of the ministerial committee for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in his region, which says everything about, his fellow, uh, about how his fellow pastors view him. And he's the chair of the ministerium for the local pastors in his area. There's so much more, but there's one word that's been used most frequently here. 
It's not one of the core roles or requirements that the committee used in evaluating him and, and that we'd like uh, you to use as well. But it's, this word is woven all through the core roles and requirements, and that is the word humility. Humility. And that, I would submit to you, is what's most important if you had to choose. And we have that on good authority. It's right here, maybe not coincidentally, in the book of Romans at the heart of our verses that we're going to go through today in chapter 12. Today we're launching into a passage that as much as any other in Scripture speaks to what's been going on politically or against what's been going on politically, to some degree anyway, to a good degree in some places, among evangelical Christians. Or more exactly, to, it speaks to how we're being perceived by the watching world. Sometimes unfairly, sometimes wrongly, but all too often rightly. No two chapters of scripture are more relevant to this than Romans 12 and 13, which talk about how we should then live in light of what God has done and what the world is waiting to see. In light of all the doctrine of Romans 1 to 11, what's the life application? We come today to a section of the Bible that is more needed among Christians than perhaps ever before uh, in the history of our nation. We live in a country where Christians have become known more for their uh, moral principles, for their political and governmental policies, than for their spiritual qualities. The character qualities of true Christianity that must stand behind all of our other priorities. Or it's going to be all heat and no light or love. Too often we're better known for you know, the policies we espouse and the qualities we express. In fact, many Christians are known for character qualities that are antithetical to true Christianity. So it's timely that for however much longer Julie and I are here, we'll be looking at what God intended us to be known for and at the core of our passions. And it's in this congregation too. Old-fashioned qualities that you'll find all the way through these chapters, like humility, charity, sincerity, generosity, sympathy, mercy, submission to authority, and more. Paul lists them one after the other in these two chapters in order to call out of God's people in order to call uh, out of the church of Jesus Christ the character qualities that we may not be known for in the political sphere, but that we can be known for in our personal spheres of influence where we live, work, and play. Having looked at the words of the gospel, you might say in Romans 1 to 11, now we're going to be looking at the music of the gospel that backs the words starting in Romans 12. Let me just read to you some of it so you'll see the forest for the trees, and then we'll go back to the beginning and jump in. It reads kind of like the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 14, for instance. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 
Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Whoa. These and many more are the qualities of true Christianity, we'll see. And today we come first to the first and by far the most important we're going to see, the bottom line of what's most needed from the pulpit to the pew, and that is maybe a little more humility. It's in Romans 12, starting in verse 3. It's where Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I say not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. We've seen, to put it in the context of the first two verses, that Paul begins the first two verses here by telling us how to do the things that he then goes to tick off, starting with humility. Before he tells us what things we need to be doing, he tells us how to do it. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, remember, uh, he says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Get yourself up on the altar so it can be him through you, him a fire in you through all that you do. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How do you do it? Last week, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, and here he launches in not to uh, uh, what, uh, not, not, not into how to do it, but into what to do. Um, And what's the first quality that's good and acceptable and perfect, as he says earlier, that needs to be fundamental to true Christianity? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Isn't that interesting? The first quality is humility, the opposite of which is pride. Of all the virtues he could have focused on, think about it. Why would he choose humility? Or to put it another way, of all the vices he could have focused on, why would he start with pride? It's not only here, it's so important that he repeats the same idea later in the chapter, in verse 16. We've already read it, where he says, do not be haughty in your own mind, but associate with the lowly. That's humility and pride combined. Do not be wise in your own estimation, which has to do with pride. So why? Why do you think he'd begin and then continue on just a few verses later with humility as the first quality of true Christianity? Paul's first application after 11 chapters of foundational doctrines is the supreme priority, the foundational quality of humility under and through all that God wants us to be. Why pride? Well, he he starts to let us know why in the way he focuses on it here in verse 3. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, every man, woman, and child, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Paul's first point here is the universality of pride. We struggle in different ways with different vices, but he's saying here we all struggle with pride. The universality of pride. And then in the verses that follow, we're going to see, he gives a recipe for humility. Powerful one-two punch. First, the universality of pride. I say to everyone among you. The idea being that everyone among them, everyone among us, without exception, apparently, is subject to this temptation and falls into it. To think more highly of himself or herself than we ought to think. He starts with it because no vice is more universal than pride. And no virtue is more essential to true Christianity than humility. This goes all the way back to Romans 3, if you remember, where after telling us about all that Christ has done, he says, where then is boasting? That's Romans 3.27. Remember that? It is excluded. Why did he put that in there? Well, we saw then that the source of our salvation was a love that had to find a way of doing the seeming impossible, and that is, as I put it, to neutralize our pride, or he couldn't get in to neutralize the pride that would keep us from receiving his grace. Which is why Paul goes on to say this, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, pride would pick right up on that, not by works, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What he's saying here is this. None of it would ever have happened had God not taken care of this as his first order of business. Had he not dealt with our pride. Had he not sabotaged the pride that would have sabotaged any attempt to save us. Had he not excluded all possibility of boasting. Because then pride would have taken over. Give it an inch, it'll take a mile. Someone once said that our search for God should really be a search for the thing that's holding us back from responding to his search for us. And that thing that keeps us from responding to his search for us, we saw in Romans 3, is pride. It's the one thing that keeps us from responding to his search for us that comes between us and God more than any other. The biggest barrier that had to come down, the greatest single obstacle that God had to overcome in his pursuit of us was just that. And God's gracious work in our lives can only continue as that obstacle stays down. As we maintain, you know, what brought us to him in the first place. And that is a childlike uh, simplicity of faith. A childlike humility in our posture that brings us to the feet of the Savior to call on him again and again. That's the secret, as we've seen, of not just salvation, but sanctification. This is so foundational to everything else, to both coming to faith and to growing in faith. 
The first order of business for our salvation was to exclude the possibility of boasting. And the first order of business for our sanctification for everyone among us is not to think more highly of himself than we ought to think. There's so much more here, but if that's the problem, then what's the solution? Well, this moves us from Paul's teaching on the universality of pride to his recipe for humility, which is verses 4 to 8. Reading on now. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. Here's the recipe. As God has allotted to each, not you, a measure of faith. He's saying, it's from God, all that you've got. What's from God? Well, if you put it in the context of the verses below, he means this. God has given to each of us, we're going to see in just a bit, a measure of faith to exercise the gifts that he's given to us by grace. In fact, Paul was saying that he couldn't even take credit for the very words that he was speaking to them at that very moment because it's only, he says, by the grace given to me that I can say to everyone among you that I can know these things. And speak them in the right way, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. What does sober judgment say? It says, yes, it's all by grace. Not only has he given me the gifts that I can't take credit for, he's given me the faith to exercise those gifts and the opportunities to do so. Sober judgment says, it's all from him. The idea is this, nothing that we have is to our credit. No, it's all to his credit because everything we have is from him. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? It's like Paul's, David said after he collected this incredible offering from the people. He said, who am I and who are my people? We're not going to boast in this because who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you. And from your hand we have given you. Don't you like that phrase? All this abundance that we have provided to build your house for your holy name, it is from your hand for all is yours. Second Chronicles 29.16. Most simply, it's like the psalmist said in Psalm 100, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. It's like the song, channels only, blessed master, but with thy wondrous power, thy power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. God teaches us these things if we're truly his, and I'm sure he's taught you these things in many ways over the years to keep you in a humble posture. Long before I ever entered the ministry, I had an experience that was almost a parable of all of this. It became foundational and like formative in my life whenever, you know, pride would rear its ugly head. I call it the parable uh, of a channel only. I was working with a Kelly girl at the time. Don't laugh. Kelly girl. Remember the old temporary service agency? Um... Uh, it was another recipe for humility to come to a business and introduce myself as their Kelly girl. They changed the name soon after. 
but not when I was there. One of my jobs with, was with a brilliant engineer who I told you about before, the one with the biometer. I don't know if you remember that story, but his, his name was Dana Manti, and he was a hard-boiled atheist, and for many months we dialogued back and forth about whether Christianity was true or not, and it turned out to be much longer than a temporary job, so we developed quite a, a good relationship, and when it finally came to an end, I gave him a call before I left town. I was exhausted from packing and winding up all my affairs, but the Spirit of God made it really clear that he wanted me to put my finger on that dial, this was back in the day, and dial up Dana Manti, even though I didn't feel like it. Dana had so many questions that night, wouldn't you know it? I was just going to say goodbye. I was exhausted. And he wouldn't let me off the phone. I said, Lord, why? I'm so tired. You're going to have to give me the strength to do this. Channel it through me, Lord. There's so much that rests on this. This is an opportunity. And pretty soon, I felt my heart start to warm, and the Spirit of God surged, and I was, I was speaking words that I knew could only come from him, words that he couldn't refute, or he didn't even, didn't even want to refute because his heart was prepared, and they really seemed to think it, sink in. Well, after it was more than an hour or so, guess what? Yeah, he, he, he said, guess what, Brian? And I said, what? He said, this whole time you've been hooked up to my stereo system. Oh, am I? I already knew quite a lot about that system. I forget how many watts it was, but he boasted in his stereo system several times over, over the months. And he said, yeah, and the speakers are outside. And this whole conversation, uh, uh, this whole conversation, uh, uh, the, the mobile home park has heard the whole thing. It was like, smile, you're on candid camera. Remember that one? Actually, I was thinking, talk about being all God by the grace given to me. When I didn't have it in myself, amplified to them, it's all him. And I knew that he'd go on to continue to do that good work which is just what Paul is saying right here in Romans 12. He said that we're to think with sober judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith to exercise the gifts through the opportunities that he has given us by grace. So if the secret of humility is to exercise sober judgment, then the first thing that sober judgment says is this. God gets the credit for all I am for all I have, and for all I do. It's like the great old hymn, all that I am I owe to thee. Thy wisdom, Lord, has fashioned me. You created me to do this. I give my maker thankful praise. These wondrous works, my soul amaze. That's what I was thinking. That wondrous work that night, my soul amazed. That kind of humility is the first of all first qualities without which all the other qualities of true Christianity will to some small or great degree be poisoned with pride. Humility is a huge priority. So how do you learn it? Well, he teaches us to think with sound judgment. First, you learn it by exercising the right judgment. But second, you learn it by exercising the right judgment 
in the right environment. There's a powerful environment that will instill pride like none other. Because apparently Paul feels that the church is the ideal environment in which we can learn it because he goes without skipping a beat into the church in this passage. The church that's the kind of body we ought to be is where you'll learn all about humility. That's the teaching here. That's why Paul immediately goes from talking about each of us individually to talking about all of us together corporately. From telling us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think with the right judgment to telling us that we need to, the kind of sober judgment that can come especially when you're in the right environment. He weaves these two together in the verses that follow. Moving on to verse 12, or 4 of Romans 12, and this is the New Living Translation. Backing it up to verse 3. Think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. But then he goes on to being in the right environment. Verse 4. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function. And then the New Living Bible uh, unpacks the implications of this uh, in a paraphrase in verse 5. Just listen to it. Uh, to it. So it is with Christ's body. We are all parts of his one body, and each of us has a different work to do. And since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other, and each of us needs all the others. Great recipe for humility. Each of us needs all the others. And then in the next verse, verse 6, he goes on to tell us how this works out in practice or one of the most powerful ways. God has given to each of us the ability to do certain things well, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's been given to us from him. That is, with the right judgment, let us use these gifts in the right environment, the environment of the body, which now we see is Paul's prescription for humility. God has given us each the ability to do certain things well, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. If God has given you the ability to prophesy, exercise it in proportion to the faith that's been given to you. That is, if your gift is prophecy, which is not foretelling, but forthtelling the truth, stoke it up. Do it well. Stoke it up with the right judgment that is from God and stoke it up in the right environment in a body where you need all the others. And as the spirit moves, you'll see something. Stoke it up in proportion to the grace that's been given to you. That's my prescription for humility. If your gift is that of serving, he goes on to say, serve them well. That is, if your gift is service, do it well. Stoke it up with the right judgment that it's from God, in the right environment, in a body where you need all the others in proportion to the grace that's been given to you. If you are a teacher, do a good job of teaching. That is recipe for humility. If your gift is teaching, do it well. Stoke it up with the right judgment that it's all from God in a right environment, in a body where you need all the others in proportion to the grace that's been given to you. And so it is, he goes on to say, 
with the gifts of encouraging, teaching, learning, and showing mercy. We're to stoke them up with the right judgment that they're from God in the right environment, in a body where you need all the others in proportion to the grace that's been given to you. And when that happens, something is catalyzed, just like happened with me and Dana, and you'll step back and say, it's all God. Nothing like it. It's all God. Results in humility. What does it feel like? Well, it feels like what happened to Herman Ostry's barn. Some of you may have heard this story. It reminds me of what's already been happening around here, so much so that Julie and I would not presume to boast in anything but what God has accomplished through us as a church over this last year or two years. Herman Ostry's barn was in Bruno, Nebraska. It was, under, it was under 29 inches of water because of the rising creek. And so Herman invited a few friends over for what you might call a barn raising. He needed to move his entire 17,000-pound uh, barn to a new foundation that was a, 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 a 143 feet away. So his son Mike devised a lattice work of steel tubing. He bolted this lattice work to all the way around the inside perimeter of the barn and then all the way around the outside perimeter of the barn. And then he welded hundreds of handles to the tubing both on the inside and the outside. About a foot and a half off the ground. And after one practice lift, 344 volunteers slowly walked the barn up the slight incline, each supporting less than 50 pounds. And in no time at all, it was on a new foundation, just like we are. After, it's called teamwork. It's like the poster I had in my last church. It's a picture, I love it, of seven men rowing a skiff, and over the top it says teamwork, and on the bottom it says the fuel that allows common people to attain uncommon results, which is what the church is all about, plain, ordinary people like you and me, POPs, doing extraordinary things, and there's nothing like it. And it does, does it do something for your humility or what? Humility comes from the right judgment about what God has given to each of us in an environment where we see what God can do through all of us. That's a recipe that will nourish like nothing else the fundamental quality of true Christianity over the long haul. The humility that I would submit to you, this world most needs to see. And under it all, that quality is among the things that most attracted your search committee to Dave Hoffelmeyer. Let me close with this. All of this shows the supreme priority uh, of our fourth value as a church, and that is the value of serving together, right? It says this, we partner as a team, ministering with the attitude of servants. That's humility. Right out of Romans 12. 
in all that we do. This is so important that we're going to be doing a three-week series on this value. It started today, and then next week, Jim Murphy will be preaching on service, serving together, as will Jeff Jeffrey in the week following, and then three weeks from, tomorrow, uh, from today, uh, Dave Hoffelmeyer. It's so important that one of the four priority roles that we're looking for in the next pastor is just this. As we've already seen, I had it up there, a team player with a servant's heart. I didn't read what comes under that. Let me just read just a bit of it. What does it look like? Well, it says this. It's right out of Romans 12. The lead pastor will not be a dictator, but a first among equals with his unique giftings and responsibilities. He will be focused on fulfilling our call to accomplish our mission and values by working shoulder to shoulder with the leadership team and the congregation. As one member of a team that is leading the church in a unified direction, he will demonstrate servant leadership by sharing power, by putting the needs of others first, by helping people develop and perform to their full potential, and by facilitating a partnering that will build up and unite our ministries, that will stoke it up, and you'll be saying, look what God has done. Serving together. Every congregation has a unique gift mix just like every Christian does. And we learn about the gift mixes of congregations and interim pastor ministries as we go from one to another. And this congregation, I'm telling you, has the gift of service in a most unusual way. It's beautiful to see a lot of people who are motivated by the idea of serving behind the scenes not tooting their horns. And that's a good thing because we currently have a lot of areas where you happen to be needed. Just go to our faith website and click on the connect tab on the homepage, then click volunteer in the drop down list and it'll take you to the page you see on the screens. So please do that, please step up. We need everything from people to help with our youth, to help with slides in our worship service, to help with our worship in our contemporary service and a number of other things. It's time to stoke it up with our time and our talents, and our tithes, which leads to the final thing. I can't imagine a better way to welcome a new pastor, whoever he is. What better way to welcome him than by rallying together, uh, by continuing to rally together like they did with Herman Ostry's barn, like this passage calls us to do. Because as you'll notice from the pastoral profile, it's not your typical superstar that we're after. A man of great stature who can shoulder the church and single-handedly lead you into whatever. Is it any wonder why so many pastors fall? Because that's the burden we put on them. No, all along the search committee kept going back to what under and through it all this profile calls us to look for, and that is not a Saul, but a David. They kept saying, we're looking for our David. And Dave Hoffelmeyer's success, should he come, his success will depend on how many in this church look not to a pastor as their savior, as we've been saying all along for the last two years, but to the only God, our savior, just like he does. It will depend on how many put their hands, you know, to the handles, 
serving together with the right judgment and the right environment in proportion to the grace that comes only from God. It will depend on those who move mountains, not for the pastor, but for the, only, the one who's their only vision. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. His success will depend on those who know and show the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ in his power, who alone can shoulder the church through all of us together as we all look to him alone. As we stand up and serve him alone. As the worship leaders come forward, would you make this your commitment? Why don't we signal it by all standing and singing, stand up, stand up for Jesus.